This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday late afternoon on 640 Toronto, and I am your co-host of Tasting Together, Maroki Tong, joined with Andre Pru. Hello. And the nice thing about, hello, the nice thing about Saturdays at 5 o'clock as we enter June is that the sun is still up. You know, I downloaded the Weather Network app on my iPhone, and on the home screen, you can set widgets. And I'm sorry, I, for, for some people in the car, this is going to sound amazing. For some people in the car, it's going to be like, oh, come on, Andre, you doofus. How did you not know this? My favorite widget that I installed is having the Weather Network app right on my home screen tell me when the sun rises and the sun sets. And my favorite thing at this time of year is the sun, the day is getting longer by like six, seven minutes a day. So like every day mm -hmm. I can I can witness the, the day getting longer and I love it. Like I just love the sunshine so much. Well, it's nice because now these days if we want to spend some time on like in the patios or going to the park, we know we're not about to risk like sudden darkness, right? Because <laughs> once the sunset, it goes, it goes away. You know, it's just like I, I hate, I loathe like that December to January stretch with just how short the days are like when you you get a little bit of daylight to start working in the moment you, you know, and like I work from home most of the time, even by the time you snap your laptop shut, it's like, oh, it's dark already. <laughs> well, one of the things that's interesting about spending time outside right now and enjoying the parks, like I said, is that it looks like um, after a lot of years of debate and a lot of opinions, city council is thinking of releasing a pilot program to allow the consumption of alcohol in the parks. Oh, hooray. City Council in <laughs> Toronto is finally going to let adults act like adults? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we'll see how much they allow people acting like adults because so far the parameters is that they're allowing the program to be operational for only just about two months spanning from August 5th to October 9th. So it's not in place yet. And then the other caveat is that you're only allowed to drink in the parks where the local councillor has opted into the program, of which out of the 25 wards, four of them voted against it. Oh, God. I just like, you know, trust the bureaucrats at City Hall to make something that should be simple, unnecessarily complicated. You know, this, this is one of the things where when I when I look at how the laws are, are written and structured, it's just like... We, we need to remember that the alcohol laws are now like a, a hundred years old. Prohibition was a hundred years ago. And we're still seeing the fallout from that. We already have laws against like public drunkenness. Like if you get so drunk that you're, you're hammered, fine. You deserve a ticket, right? Like that's something that is already on the books. So like the whole like enjoying a glass of rosé while having a picnic while sitting in Trinity Bellwoods Park being like a problem on society is just like, I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. I think this is reminding me a lot of the debate um, and controversies around the legalization of cannabis Yeah. over the last few years, right? Years and years and years, people were penalized for consuming cannabis. It was considered unsafe. It was considered this. It was considered that. And then when it was legalized, so many things that everyone was already doing just sort of, it just kept going, Yeah. I guess, you know, and I, and I, and, you know, for, for me, um, <laughs> whether we want to believe it or not, especially during the pandemic, people were enjoying drinks outside in public places because it was the only way, you know, anyone was socializing safely during that time. Yeah. 
And it's obviously one of the uh, catalysts that drove to this eventual decision. It's one of those, hey, it's been happening and the world for didn't three end. years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, out of necessity. And um, I think it's time we make it legal so that there isn't the chance that someone's going to get penalized over something that, frankly, was a pretty innocent thing, all things considered. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, and you know, like like I said, like it comes down to the fact that we already have laws in place to protect society from the potential downfall, like excessive consumption, things like that. We already have laws against drinking and driving, so we don't have to worry about someone driving to a park, you know, having a couple bottles of said rosé I mentioned earlier and then driving home. Like if you do that, that's still going to be illegal. So like, yeah, I mean, it's the other thing, too, where where I think it's time like it's it's a waste of time and effort at City Hall that they still have these exceptions or pilot products because every time there's a sporting event, you know that that exception is going to be made, but they still have to talk about it at City Hall. They still have to put the motion forward. They still have to pass the bylaw. And it's just like, I want my, my politicians at City Hall spending their time on more important things. Like, I don't know, maybe finishing the Eglinton Cross town that's still under construction. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I would honestly be okay with, with all of the city councillors Literally just yelling at Metrolinks every day. Is it done yet? Is it done yet? Is it done yet? That is a far better use of time than that. Um, but I guess if, if we're talking talking about like maybe the lighter side of this, I am 100% planning on enjoying a beverage in a park in the summer. I'm not encouraging breaking the law, but it's probably because I already have done that in the past many times because mm -hmm. it's well, just and normal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think like to your point... And I guess um, to a lot of people who have been commenting on this whole situation is the whole drinking in a park or on the beach, it's not a new thing in other parts of the world, right? Yeah. As far as I know, there's a, like, I remember when I was studying in Germany, you most certainly could have a drink in a park. Um, I know in Hong Kong, uh, and, and this is many years ago, so it's been a while since I've been in Hong Kong, but you could definitely walk around with a drink if you so wanted. I even believe in Montreal. I'm making an assumption here, but I remember when I was visiting friends in Montreal, there was certainly like little outdoor barbecues that were happening where people were having picnics and I'd be hard pressed to believe that there wasn't a bottle of sparkling or red wine or some beers at those, at those little outdoor barbecues. Did it feel unsafe? Does it feel no, unsafe? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> And I think that's what a lot of people have commented saying, you know, especially those of European descent saying like, I have family in Europe or I have friends in Europe or I've lived in Europe and this has never been an issue. It's just a, you know, it's an integral, it's an integrated part of our society and, you know, having a good social life and having a good community and in some ways probably is safer because people aren't trying to sneak things in. You aren't kind of having to kind of, you know, um, I guess, feel like a criminal when you want to engage <laughs> in a social activity. I mean, that being said, I do like the element of feeling like a criminal sometimes. Anyways, <laughs> never mind, not encouraging breaking the law. But I mean, it's the other thing too, where I think that making these changes is a big step forward in just helping, you know, our Canadian producers become more a part of the culture. Like right now, you know, the LCBO, like, there was an article that was sent to me from a couple of years ago from TVO about how when the LCBO was originally set up, the whole process was created to make people 
feel shame when they were buying alcohol. And yeah, it's definitely morphed into these big shiny stores, but it's also like, you know, the, the LCBO does very little, I think, to promote the culture of agriculture that goes into beverage production. And I really think the LCBO does a very poor job at supporting local producers across all segments, beer, wine, and spirits. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it also this whole drinking in the parks thing is sort of um, an evolution 100%. of even allowing uh, drinks, you know, a- allowing the selling of alcohol in grocery stores, allowing the selling of alcohol in convenience stores or the opening of bottle shops, a lot of it being expedited by the pandemic. And now the idea of having allowing consumption in parks is just another step i guess we're leveling up even though we're a few steps behind a lot of cities in the world and i guess hilariously i should note that um even the city noted that while drinking in parks is still technically illegal right now there were no tickets issued for drinking in parks last year so i think society societally we are beginning to understand this already we just need legal to catch up on it go have a couple of beers in a park just don't act like a moron you can quote me on that (laughs) (laughs) well rolling off of that i guess if we're going to talk about supporting agriculture after the break we're going to be diving into farmers markets all the great ones that are popping up around the summer evergreen brickworks being one of them and chatting about how you can get your hands on some local produce so stick around you might find out which farmers market you could meet me at that's coming up after the break on 640 toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, Maroki, what did you do this morning? Well, Andre, given that I am a night owl, I slept in and then rolled out of bed in the late to mid-morning and enjoyed a cup of coffee very quietly. I woke up and hit up a local farmer's market because that's what I usually do Saturday morning. I am very much a morning person. I sometimes forget that you are not. Oh, trust me. When you call me very chipper in the early mornings, I (laughs) totally experience your early bird enthusiasm (laughs) in a way that my night owl self will never, ever be able to appreciate. And you know, I think this is one where uh, we have a guest joining us right now to talk a bit about farmers markets. Um, I am actually a vendor, an occasional vendor at a couple of farmers markets in Toronto. I run a small wine business called the ADX Wine Business, and it's a very important venue for wineries because it is one of the only places that you can sell wine legally that is not the LCBO or your cellar door where you actually make your wines. But I'm very pleased for us to be joined by Chantelle Steppa, who is the market manager at the Evergreen Brickworks Market. How are you doing, Chantelle? Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me join you. And I should I should say that one of the few things that will rouse me out of bed is farmers markets. All right. So I will do it now. Mind you, I probably um, and I have been the person that rolled into Evergreen Brickworks in that last hour <laughs> running through the stalls to get every single like food item I can very shortly. But I will do the thing. And I, I did used to work at a farmer's market myself. So once upon a time, I understood how to wake up in the mornings. But Chantel, I guess like, you know, one of the things I wanted to sort of ask you today is when people come to the farmer's markets, like what do they usually hope to expect? Because I think everyone has these different visions of what farmer's markets are. And for me, I am there to get my produce and my vegetables and essentially do my grocery shopping. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is that 
so many farmers markets can be different from each other that it is a different experience depending on which market you visit. But generally, people are drawn to farmers markets because it's a great way to connect with where your food comes from. It's one of the very few places where you can like meet the farmer that you know grew the carrots, grew the apples, grew the potatoes. You get to like meet the winemaker. Uh, you get to meet the baker themselves. You get to ask them questions about their products and like build that relationship with them as well. Um, but a lot of people do go to farmer's markets also like for the experience. It's not just shopping. Uh, you know, you can bring your dog with you. There's often live music and there could be kids crafts and face painting. Uh, one of the nice things about um, Evergreen Brickworks is, you know, we're located in the ravine. And so we have this beautiful pond in the back and all these trails. And so after people do their shopping or maybe before their shopping, they'll go for a walk um, and it becomes like a full day excursion. The thing I love about Evergreen Brickworks in particular is living in Davisville, doing the whole walk. Like you can walk literally from the Mount Pleasant Cemetery all the way through and end up at the Brickworks. And there's just so many paths and trails that connect to get you there by foot. And I mean, the nice thing too is it's pretty accessible by transit as well. Like you have a bus route that goes right to Davisville, which is convenient for me. Um, but it's also you have the um, shuttle bus that goes to Pape Station, if I believe, if I remember it's correctly. Broad, Broadview, Broadview Station. Yes, okay. right next to Broadview Station is a little parkette. And then we have a free shuttle bus uh, that brings you right down to the Brickworks. Now, I off the top of this mentioned that I am an occasional vendor there. And one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize is when you are going to sell at a farmer's market. Most farmer's markets, actually the two farmer's markets I sell at both have a pretty detailed um, application form where you ask questions about how your business is run, how your fruit is grown, how your food is grown, where your farm is, what you're doing. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process and, and what type of vendors are at the market and how you make sure that they are in fact the people who are making the food that are being that is being sold at the market. Yeah, of course. So we do have a lengthy process. Um, and like you're saying, a very detailed application because trust and transparency is probably one of the most important aspects of the farmers markets. We want um, consumers to be able to come and like trust the food that they're purchasing. Um, and so Part of that process starts with the application form. We're asking lots of information about where they're located, what crops they're growing, um, and if they have any certifications. And that could be organic certification, biodynamic. There's also like a MyPIC program with Farmers Market Ontario. Um, and for us, like we really wanna make sure that the people that are at the market are the people behind the food. And slow food is kind of like what we're looking for. We're looking for like organic, local, wholesome, you know, supporting the little guys, making things slowly as opposed to like mass produced foods. I actually find this so fascinating. So um, not to throw the local market in my hometown under the bus, but I used to work for the St. Jacob's Farmer's Market and I know for sure that they had imported produce. One, because I sort of learned the hard way myself, um, you know, buying some stuff here and there. And then one day I kind of thought to myself, I was like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure we don't grow pineapples here in <laughs> Ontario. 
And, um, you know, even when it comes to, you know, produce like apples, just sort of I started recognizing the difference. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, this is actually imported product. So I actually didn't know that different markets have more rigorous processes. And I think that is, as you said, really good for kind of putting the spotlight on local producers, on farmers, on small producers. Do you have sort of... um, I guess, like a percentile of people you would want who sell fresh produce versus those who are bakers. I know I've definitely bought kombucha at the market before or pickled vegetables. Like, do you find that there's sort of like a divvy between people who are kind of creating, I guess, like finished or pantry products um, or baked goods versus those who are farmers? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the city of Toronto, um, to be considered a farmer's market, we have to have 51% farmers in attendance compared to other um, food vendors. Um, And this is um, from the city of Toronto and Toronto Public Health. Um, So they created um, that ratio that we have to follow because if you start skewing that ratio and you have fewer farmers than other food vendors, then you're kind of like moving away from a farmer's market. Maybe you're more like a public market, for example. Um, So that was a great question. You mentioned pineapples. I mean, I know for us um, at Evergreen Brickworks and some other markets, there is room um, for like fair trade products that come from other countries if it's not something that's easily accessible or easily growing um, here. So one thing that comes to mind is like chocolate and coffee. Like you can find those at our farmer's market, even though we can't be producing chocolate and coffee locally. We have so many local businesses that take those unfinished products and then process them locally and then make amazing things with them. You know, I really appreciate mm. you trying to be the impartial market manager and not give preferential <laughs> treatment to any of your vendors. But that was a, a quiet shout out to Chocasol, who make some of the the most interesting and delicious chocolate. And when I'm there selling wine, I'm almost always uh, eating a piece of chocolate while doing mm-hmm. it. So something to check out at the Evergreen Brickworks Market. Okay, real quick, because we're coming to the end of the interview here. What produce is in season right now that people could expect to find if they hit up the farmer's market next weekend on June 10th? Yeah, so we're we're at the beginning of spring um, or mid spring, I'd say. So you're gonna look, you're gonna find really fun things like strawberries and rhubarb, um, which is like, I, I feel like those are like the flavors of spring. Things like asparagus are also in season, and then we're gonna see lots of leafy greens, ramps, and green garlic, which is um, you know before garlic starts to turn into the the curly scapes, um, and then the full bulbs. So those are just a few of the things that you'll see in season. And then, you know, as as summer goes on, then more and more stuff will come in. And the good news is wine is always in season. So visit your local farmer's <laughs> market and support your local winery. <laughs> Chantel Steppa, thank you so much for uh, joining us today to talk about the Evergreen Brickworks uh, Farmer's Market every Saturday from 8 to 1 while it's outside. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk about local food and the local economy and local producers. And I hope everyone gets out to a farmer's market near them this summer. I feel like I need to stay more in tune with what's in season so that I could get some strawberries. But coming up after the break, we're going to, since we're talking about all the things that are in season year round, we're going to be diving into some Canadian whiskey. That's coming up on 640 Toronto. 
You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Andre Pru, I know we always talk about our love for wine and, you know, occasionally we talk about our love for beer. And I think it's time we kind of talk about our other love, which is whiskey. Yeah, and we recently had a chance to taste through a couple of whiskeys from J.P. Weiser's, a Canadian whiskey. I guess we're talking rye whiskey, if you're my grandfather. Uh, they're 10-year-old and a new, a relatively new product, the Hickory 13-year-old, uh, both available through the LCBO right now. Uh, I thought it was really interesting to sit down and actually like scrutinize these whiskeys with you a little bit because, um, you know, my mea culpa, and, and apologies to our guests who are about to introduce, Canadian whiskey is not my normal go-to. You and I, we've spent a bit of time talking about scotch, we've spent a bit of time talking about bourbon, but um, I was really digging that Hickory. And it's interesting that you were digging the hickory, um, and I think I was digging the 10-year more, and that really just sometimes goes to show, right? Um, all different palettes are subjective, and yeah. if you like one thing more than the other, obviously it does not make you better or worse. But I suppose someone's going to speak to it to the best, um, better than both of us. We have Dr. Don Livermore joining us <laughs> from uh, from JB Weisers. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you, guys. It's a pleasure being here today. Yeah, and, and, and Dr. Livermore, this is the last time I'm going to I'm going to refer to you as doctor in the interview, though. I just had to chuckle a little bit because we keep getting really smart people who have written their doctorates on amazing things. Um, you've written your doctorate about something to do with whiskey. About a month ago, we spoke with someone who's written their doctorate on the entomology of pizza in the GTA. So we've had a pizza doctor, then we have a whiskey doctor. I don't know what doctor we're going to find next month. <laughs> We always need to bring the people in to school us. So, Don, I guess, you know, what Andre said about is mea culpa and not drinking a lot of Canadian whiskey. I will say I got my start in whiskey in scotch as well. And then my partner's American. So then inevitably bourbon ended up in my on my shelf. And I should ask you, what makes Canadian whiskey Canadian whiskey? You know, like people know have like people know sort of there's some archetypes around scotch. People know that bourbon has a strict set of rules. Does Canada have a similar set of rules? Yes, it does. And I, I find as the master blender for Canada's largest distillery that Canadian whiskey is the most innovative, creative, adaptable style of whiskey there is. All we have to do is be made in Canada, be made of grain, fermented, aged and distilled in Canada aged in a wooden barrel of less than 700 liters for a minimum of three years and a minimum of 40% alcohol, that's it. They don't tell us we have to use a mash bill like our uh, counterparts with bourbon. Uh, we can use corn, wheat, rye, barley. We can do a mash bill. We don't have to do a mash bill. It's up to me as the master blender as my choice. They don't tell us how to distill it. So I can use combinations of column stills and pot stills or mix them together. And they don't tell me the barrel type I have to use. Um, American uh, bourbon has to be aged in brand new barrels, whereas I can use brand new barrels, I can use used barrels, I can use wine barrels, cognac barrels. It really becomes innovative. And I really believe that the Canadian whiskey category can be quite diverse. And I think it matches Canada as a nation. Uh, the forefathers like J.P. Weiser's, uh, Henry Corby, Harm Walker, Gooderham and Warts, uh, they laid a foundation for us to be innovative and create. I always say to people, don't you want to be creative? I certainly do. And you can tell I'm passionate about Canadian whiskey. And uh, I think there are great things uh, that we can do in Canada. You know, I, I love that you're really leaning into that diversity as a strength for Canadian whiskey. But I'm curious, like in terms of how the market responds, like when you think about scotch and you say something like Isla Scotch, immediately you can imagine what that tastes like. 
And when you say bourbon for the most part, and I guess we're, we're getting some people pretty creative with mash bills, even though people are being, um, you know, following the, the strict rules down there, though, you, you have an, an identity that's maybe a bit more homogenous than Canadian whiskey. Do you think that there is something signature about what makes Canadian whiskey Canadian whiskey? And uh, I guess a, a quick follow up as well. If you think not, like, do you think there is something we should establish as an identity beyond leaning into the diversity? Funny, I wrote a, a paper on that doing my master's of science. <laughs> in um, I, I think it's a strength Canadian whiskey as to being how diverse. Like for myself, uh, I'll ferment each grain separately, distill them separately, age them separately, and then we'll put them together at the end because I don't know what you want to drink 10 years from now. Um, if I do that today, I can manipulate recipes the way I see the markets trending. I think the issue with Canadian whiskey becomes is that we've been poor storytellers. Um, when was the last time you've talked with a master blender from a Canadian whiskey distillery? Never. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's kind of the point. When I go out to industry events, you'll see master uh, blenders or distillers from Scotland or master distillers from uh, um, the bourbon country, and they have been prevalent for probably 40 or 50 years telling them what they're all about. And I think us as Canadians, I don't know if it's our apologetic nature. I think we, <laughs> it, it could be, I, but I really think we need to get out there and describe what our house styles are like. Um, I am responsible for JP Weiser's as you indicated here. And I find it's a very distinctive taste for that family of whiskeys. But on the other hand, I'm responsible for lot 40, which is completely different tasting profile uh, of whiskey, but it comes from the same distillery. And I think that's, the avenue distilleries or master blenders in this country should go is look for the house style, try it. If you like it, I would then ladder up into those house styles. Uh, um, if that's the taste profile you're looking for. Oh, Don, you're, you're, you're a man after my own heart right now. I didn't realize you were responsible for the lot number 40 as well. <laughs> I've drank a lot of the lot number 40 dark Oak that Maroki, you and I talked about earlier this year when we were talking about whiskey awards. Remember what, what I love about you talking about diversity is, the ability to play. I remember when I finished my MBA in Germany, I, I tasted the, uh, the the beer there and they have the German purity laws and it's delicious. But I actually remember speaking to a lot of consumers who said, we're kind of bored of our beer though, because it literally all tastes the same. We cannot do anything different with it. And it's very frustrating for a lot of brewers to say, well, we, we could infuse cacao into our beer, but then we literally cannot call it beer anymore. It's just called like alcoholic beverage X. And that can make it very, very difficult. And on a more positive spin, um, I love emerging regions like Wines of Arizona, where I call them the wild, wild west of wine because they're growing every mm -hmm. single grape under the sun, but it's allowing them the chance to play. Well, it's clearly paying off because we're seeing these moments of glory for Canadian whiskey, right? There's certain mm -hmm. bottles that have been flying off the shelves when they've gotten media attention in the last few years. I definitely have bought for a few of those bottles myself. And I think it's great for me to be able to dig into Canadian whiskey now, which I think is also why it's so wonderful that we're partnering together on the segment. Do you think that Canadian whiskey will have its time on the in, like international stage? I know you said earlier, we're a little bit apologetic, but you know, like Canadian wine on, you know, my, my dream to get them on the international stage. Do you see us being held in the same esteem as Scotch or bourbon down the line? I hope so. I hope so. I, I hope, um, uh the other producers in the Canadian whiskey category get out there and story tell both the good things that they make as well. And I think we should push as an industry. And it's funny that you mentioned about the Germany purity law. It, it gives me thought onto what I've been hearing on podcasts and Instagram and, and things like that, where 
bourbon producers are very strict in their laws, much like the bourbon purity law. And then now I'm hearing them talking about, well, if I blend this and blend this together in blend these, it's funny how their trajectory is going to where Canadian whiskey has known it all along. Um, I don't know whether we were ahead of the curve in Canada, what the case may be, but I'm starting to hear other whiskey categories around the world trying to put in blending and what we do well. I'll often say blending is beautiful. That's oh. a, a great way to a great way to put that there. Um, I know you're talking about blending in terms of what ends up in the bottle. Let me bring it back to when the whiskey comes out of the bottle and into our glass. I think there mm. has been a debate that has simmered down a little bit over the years about if you're drinking whiskey straight over ice or not over ice. Do you have strong opinions about the best way to serve whiskey? It's all about personal preference, uh, to be honest with you. I find if you're a person that likes uh, the grainier or woodier flavors in your whiskey, find a whiskey that's at higher strength. I, I do find whiskeys that play it at a higher strength level. For example, Lot 40 sits at 43% because I want to emphasize the grain and the wood character. Now, if you're looking for whiskeys that want to be a little bit more floral, more more uh, fruity in characteristics, find whiskeys at, at lower strengths. Um, and then after that is whether you want to put an ice cube in or not. I know when I look at designing and innovating whiskeys, I'll, I'll understand what the market need is. Is the whiskey designed for cocktailing purposes? Is the whiskey designed for economic? Is it designed for a premium, uh, premiumness to it? Like the JP Weiser's tenure is the number one whiskey innovation in Canada this year. It's a age declared whiskey at a good price. And I think that's what the consumer segment is looking for right now. So it, it's it's about reading what consumers are wanting, what the whiskey is designed for, what the ultimate is the consumer looking for. Um, and and I, again, that's it brings back to the diversity of what we can do and we, we, we can adapt to how the market is, is looking. I super appreciate that, Don. Well, if you're looking to discover whether you like whiskey neat or on the rocks, or if you're team Maroki and want to try the JP Weiser's mm -hmm. 10-year, or if you're team Andre and want to try the JP Weiser's Hickory 13-year, you should pick up a bottle and, um, at the LCBO and try it out for yourself. The 10-year is $34.95 and the Hickory 13-year is $49.95. Don, thank yes. you so much for giving us the time today. You're welcome. Coming up after the break, we check on what global news Danny Longo has been up to in Niagara. So make sure you stick around on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Pru. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Maroki Tong. And we are joined by the talented Danny Longo of the Global Newsroom. How's it going, Danny? Love it. Love the adjectives. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm well. well. Well, Danny, I think um, you have a little bit of a recap for us from a little wine adventure you went on the previous weekend to Niagara-on-the-Lake, uh, something yes. that I did, and now I want to hear what you've done. Yes, I got to do exactly what you did. We went and uh, visited a few wineries uh, for Sip and Sizzle, which was a great event. I believe it's over now, but uh, always fun to take part in these uh exciting uh discovery pass type of of, of, of of adventures so uh yeah we went to uh riverview and we went to chateau de charme which i haven't been to in uh, quite a while and jackson triggs and all three were great um jackson triggs never disappoints you know they're a big big winery you know some would say commercial but i find they produce really great wines and they really know how to hold events for sure you know, my favorite thing about Jackson Triggs is um, 
I've noticed over the past few years, they've definitely stepped up the quality of their wines. Because like you've said, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, they are a lot, one of the larger wineries in Ontario. They're definitely more commercial. Um, but I've had my, my finger to the pulse for a little while. And I understand the people running the company, uh, the parent companies, Artera, have really decided that the future of Ontario wine is focusing on the premium quality VQA wine. So we should see some really exciting stuff coming out of there. No, I was just going to say, I think we tried a uh, Gewurz. Gewurztraminer that they that they make and uh, it was paired with a uh, wonderful pork slider, delicious. I think it's their Shiraz, which I say this cringingly because I still believe it should be renamed to Syrah. And I heard that they, I've heard that they've been taking it to the marketing department to change up their labels. But their their Shiraz, I can't remember if it's Reserve or their Grand Reserve, Andre. That's the one that's actually. Despite the label is from a single vineyard, it's quite exceptional and it's in that 20-ish price point, um, presents extremely well. I think, honestly, they should just stop doing those $10 magnums. Like, stop blowing out those extremely cheap white label magnums in the wine rack, in the grocery store. Focus on their slightly more premium. I get it. There's some people who just want the cheaper wine because they're there to enjoy, you know, have a good time. They're not necessarily picky on their palate, but from a branding perspective, it I think it just um, diminishes the brand and what the the quality wine that it can stand for. I would agree with you on that. But if you were to take a look at the books for the people who work at Artera, those white label wines are these wineries, you know, licensed to print money. I mean, it's something that's been quite contentious within the industry for quite some time. The wines used to be called Cellared in Canada, which, you know, wineries in Ontario focusing on VQA had their arms up about because it definitely does confuse the market that okay if it says cellared in canada this must mean it's canadian wine where the reality is those white label magnums are made largely of international wines and juices imported into canada with a little bit of canadian wine blended into it and they can afford to do that at um, the dirt cheap price point but i mean if you're focused on quality food and and like you won't buy certain things at the grocery store because you're just focused on you know whether it's eating organic or just supporting local you should really think twice before grabbing that white label and spend a few more dollars and making sure the bottle says vqa yeah good, so good lesson yeah, very good yeah so uh we had a great time at those three wineries in niagara on the lake and we were driving back to uh back home and we decided to stop in 20 valley and we visited rich point which i haven't been to in quite a while and we got to try a couple of unusual wines that i have never had the opportunity to try so that was great we tried a white cabernet Yes. Which was delicious. So, white Cabernet. Yeah, unusual. I was like, how does this work? And, you know, they had a little bit of a description on the bottle of how the process works, but maybe you can uh, share. Do I want to go super nerd on this, Maroki, or is this this for you? I I mean, I think it is my thing. Um, I can only... I think I know how you make white wine out of red grapes. I have had white Zinfandel before. Not, Not the type that we all kind of laugh at. Uh, the, the extremely sugary stuff. I've actually had some, you know, quite dry whites in Vendel. But essentially, when you're making white wine from red grapes, I believe you're removing the skins. Yeah. If you take most red grapes and throw them into a, a press, the juice comes out white. I think the one example I really love to uh, point out to people is champagne. Champagne is made primarily of three grapes. Chardonnay, which we all know and love as white grapes. At least you all should love it, according to me. Um, And then Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, which are both red grapes that make some fantastic red wines. But you throw that those grapes into the press, the juice comes out clear, and boom, 
you get white juice out of red grapes. So the white cab, you're getting white juice out of the red grapes. How did it taste, Danny? I loved it. I mean, we bought a couple of bottles. Um, it, it was. It, I mean, it tasted like a white wine, but it had it had different flavor notes. It, it tasted, you know, I could kind of taste like the grape that it came from, but uh, it was nice and cool. And we got to sit outside. It was a beautiful weekend. So yeah, it was it was great. I don't think I've had a white cab yet to date. I, I it kind of doing more experimental wines with certain it's like it's interesting because in the world of winemaking some people will experiment with meant with certain grapes they'll be like okay well let's put you know these red grapes in and let's put the you know let's age in concrete let's do something in stainless steel but then there's certain grapes where i find that they will that winemakers will never touch and experiment with because they just really want to keep in that super classic style like i rarely will see unoaked Pinot Noir. I think I've seen one producer do it. And I remember trying and thinking this is actually quite exceptional. And I'm surprised they're not doing it more frequently to let the fruit sing more. But I think it's just one of those things where everyone wants to kind of make it in that Burgundian style. They want to see a touch oak. There's an expectation of what you're about to taste and winemakers may be reticent to pull away from it because, and you know, maybe someone, maybe they're nervous that someone won't buy it yep. per se. So white Cabernet, I think is another one of those where I just don't see it done very often. And so kudos to Ridgepoint for breaking the mold, I guess. You know, Danny, I love that you visited Ridgepoint in general to bring up this topic of like off the beaten path wines. Cause um, the owner Mauro Scarzalone is uh, very passionate about what he has planted. Um, have either of you tasted the Nebbiolo? that they grow at Ridgepoint. I haven't. I'm definitely going to have to go back there again. I, I always like going to Toss and they're right down the street. So we could stop in uh, hopefully on our next visit. And then I think the one thing, if I can give a, a shout out to one specific wine from Ridgepoint, um, Moro has a grape planted called Glera, which you don't see anywhere else in Ontario, as far as I know. If uh, anyone wants to correct me, you can definitely contact us at the station or follow me on social media at Andre Wine Review. It's unique because Glera is what is used in Italy to make Prosecco. And Moro has Charmat tank, so he can make Prosecco-style wine with the Prosecco grape in Ontario, make it VQA. So they're essentially making the closest thing you can get to Prosecco from Ontario while being true to the original style and the original grapes. Um, I, I think that Moro and the people at Ridgepoint are all a little bit of uh, kind of crazy geniuses at a certain point mm -hmm. I, I love some of the wines from there so what are other ontario winemakers doing to make their version of prosecco i, I assume they're just making wine char charmat style so they're like you know like i said before there's two different methods of making sparkling wine there's three um but let's focus on the two that people know right like champagne um or like quote unquote i call it champagne style so traditional method sparkling mm -hmm. is the official technical terminology second fermentation and bottle a lot of you know traditional method sparkling in Ontario is not often made with Pinot. You know, out of the three grapes, you don't see actually that much um, made with Pinot Meunier just because there's not too not many vineyards planted, that grow yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, similarly in um, you know we don't grow Galera, which is very much Prosecco's chosen grape. It's their indigenous variety, but we, you can make you know any sort of sparkling wine using Charmat style. So you can do it with. You can do it with Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Meunier, like any white, essentially, and it's just made sparkling. Like I think, I think in Ontario we see quite a bit of sparkling Riesling, um, some yeah. sparkling Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris. 
and when you're looking to get that like floral element from um, a sparkling wine, there are a lot of other grapes planted that that give that floral quality. Uh, you can get some muscat. Like I know one of your favorite winemakers, Maroki, uh, Derek Barnett of Meldville has a sparkling muscat that he works with, but you can work that in proportion with things like Riesling or Pinot Blanc or Chardonnay for that matter. And you can kind of get the, the, the flavor profile of Prosecco along the way. So like there's a lot of really great Ontario options. One that I recently tasted is called Lazara from uh, Henry Appellum. I took a quick look at the website. I don't even know what grapes that they use to make that, but I found it a pretty dead ringer for um, dead ringer for for entry level prosecco when I tasted that. Well, speaking of sparklings, but going another direction, Jackson Triggs also has a sparkling Merlot, so a sparkling red, which we don't really see all that often. And it's done traditional method sparkling, so I'll be really interested in tasting that one personally. Um, we could probably keep talking about all the different wines that are out there that are unique in Ontario and beyond, but we're coming to the end of the segment. So I guess you'll just have to stay tuned for next Saturday and every Saturday at 5 p.m. for all the weird and fun wines that exist in the world. This has been Tasting Together on 640 Toronto.